Our gospel this morning is from the 11th or the 5th chapter of St. Luke, beginning at the first verse. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, also called the Sea of Galilee, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he saw two boats there on the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. Jesus got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, who we would know as Peter, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down, and he taught the crowds from the boat. Now, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now, Simon responded, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet, if you say so, I will let down the nets. Now, when they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So, they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And, and they came and filled both their boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed Jesus. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. By the way, before I get started, shout out to our friends at uh, Trinity Oaks Help health and rehab, the Lutheran home, because I know that they are watching us this morning. And so, uh, many, um, many thanks to folks like Leon and Davy Rhodes and others who we know are worshiping with us this morning. And that just feels good, doesn't it? feels good and right. Well, um, this past week, maybe you saw the news. We paid a lot of attention to it. The Washington Redskins became officially the Washington Commanders. Uh, Whatever. Okay, well, the Washington football team, I should say, became the Washington Commanders, but that's another story. The Redskins had been the team's name since 1937 and included such superstars as, well, like a coach, Joe Gibbs, and, and Larry Brown, John Riggins, Mark Mosley, Joe Theismann, Daryl Green, so many others. They won three Super Bowls, ten division titles, maybe not the most prolific team in the uh, NFL, uh, you know, especially when you're thinking of… <coughs> <laughs> the Patriots, but they had a rabid D.C. fan base and a crazy sold-out stadium. The NFL's only band made up of an all-volunteer group of, of fans. It's a team my boys grew up following when we were living in the Northern Virginia area, and so like so many others in that area and that fan base, they weren't just fans, they were followers, they were disciples. North Carolinians know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, especially during college basketball season when it seems like everyone in the state is either uh, Carolina or Duke or State or Wake Forest. I mean, maybe you went to Catawba or Lenoirine or Davidson, but when basketball season rolls around, you bleed blue, red, gold, whatever. You're a follower. You're a disciple. Well, after last night, I must admit, I'm no longer a disciple. I'm just not going to follow that team anymore. No, not true. Not true at all, if you know what I'm talking about. Well, today we read again from the Gospel of Luke, and as you know, we've been walking through this gospel, as we'll do throughout 2022. We're studying the life of Jesus, and we're early in His ministry, and we've now turned the page to chapter 5, and chapter 5 has the title, Jesus Calls His First 
disciples. We know them, of course, as the 12 disciples or the apostles, sometimes they are known as, who were invited by Jesus to drop what they are doing and to follow Him, which is what they did. But as it turns out, that's a crazy way of understanding discipleship. Here's what I mean. To be a disciple in those days wasn't unusual. There were disciples. There were people that others would follow. I mean, after all, being a disciple simply means that you were a follower. Now, in a more formal sense, you were an apprentice, someone who sat at the feet of a teacher and did their very best to imitate their life and their teaching, what they thought you would think, how they process things is the way you would process things. Plato had disciples. Aristotle and Socrates, they had disciples. Halil, probably the most famous of all the rabbis of that time period, certainly had disciples, as did most of the well-known rabbis of the day. But, But here's the thing. The only way that you could become a disciple is to prove that you were worthy of being a disciple. And here's what that meant for Jewish students. So, beginning at the age of five, uh, they would memorize, they would begin memorizing the first five books of Scripture, and eventually the 150 of David's Psalms. Around the age of 15 or so, they would go through that kind of formal instruction for around eight or ten years. Then the best of the best, and that would be only a few, those who would sort of remained and, and had something within them that could help them take the next step forward, with, then they were given permission. It wasn't automatic. They were simply given permission then to ask if they could study with a rabbi, which is a high honor, if accepted into the rabbi's stead the student would dedicate their life to that rabbi, listening, watching, imitating him to the best of his ability. And of course, in those days, it was almost exclusively boys and men. That's what it meant to be a disciple. They were the best of the best. They were the cream of the crop. They were the MVPs of the team, which makes this story so odd, doesn't it? I mean, look, I mean, Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee. And by the way, it's important to know the context. Uh, Just sort of picture all of this. Nearly everybody in Galilee was connected in some way or another to the fishing industry. As fishermen, maybe, but also as builders of fishing boats or of of nets, processors of the thousands of pounds of of fish that were caught on a daily basis. I mean, it it was such an important industry to, to not just Galilee, but the entire region. It was Herod's main industry of that northern region, and Herod had his control over that region. He licensed, you had to have a license just to fish in the sea, but you had to pay the license. It was essentially a tax, because what else are you going to do if you live in that in that part of Galilee. You have to feed your family. And, and these, these fishermen were subsistence fishermen, which means they sort of they just went day by day by day. If you didn't catch fish one day, you weren't eating that night for the most part. And, and so here's what Jesus walked into that day, and an area that was teeming with that kind of crowd, that kind of activity, and with fishermen, hard-working, strong, capable fishermen. Amongst all of that, Jesus identifies a few, maybe at the most three, who clearly were struggling. I mean, their nets were empty. And my guess is they were extremely frustrated by that point. They had been fishing all night long. They were out of luck. To no avail, they had nothing to show for it. And so they had given up. Now, that's not easy to do. They're not looking at their watch, and once five o'clock rolls around, up, it's time to go home, guys. Again, if they don't catch, they're not eating that night. And so, 
it takes a lot for them to finally give up. And, and so, sure enough, here Jesus enters into that, that space, and he, and, he, and, he, and he identifies these three fishermen, and, and Jesus reaches out to one of them, to Simon, and in his boat he sits. And then he says in verse 4, take a look, he says, Simon, by the way, um, put out into the deep water, and then, and then let down your nets again for a catch, which is sort of funny, right? I mean, here's Jesus. Chapter 4, the crowd had already identified Jesus as, isn't he the carpenter's son? Yeah, Jesus, who now they know as teacher and rabbi. So, carpenter, teacher, rabbi, rabbi, not a fisherman, and yet he's the one telling these professional fishermen how to fish, who haven't been very good fishermen, as it turns out. I mean, so maybe they're a little anxious. Maybe they're a little, uh, their pride is sort of hurt at this point. Maybe, maybe they're getting a little bit chippy with one another. Maybe they're getting frustrated and anger, <laughs> angry. Who knows? We do know that their hands are calloused, right? We do know that their muscles are aching, their skin is torn. Others have been catching fish that day, but not them. <laughs> but, but uh, which says that these are hardly the best and the brightest, right? I hate to say that about our friend Simon, but I mean, maybe they weren't at the top of their class. Maybe they weren't the cream of the crop. Maybe they weren't the MVPs of the Galilee Fishing Society. And yet, these were the men that Jesus invited to be His disciples. Crazy, huh? So, why would He do it? I mean, why? Well, because unlike Socrates and Plato, Jesus doesn't call the equipped. Jesus equips the called. But first, he's got to catch their attention, right? So, Jesus says, yeah, go. Go into the deep water and, and let down your nets again. And so, they do for whatever reason. They do. And you know the rest of the story. They catch so many fish that their nets were breaking. They could hardly haul it in so much that they call in some help. And even their boats begin, begin to sink. It's incredible. And then notice what happens next because this is really important. It's in verse 8. When Simon saw what was happening, he looks over at Jesus and he falls down at his feet and he said, Lord, go away from me for I'm a sinful man. Go away from me because I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm unworthy to be in your presence. It's crazy to think, isn't it? That the first disciple, who we know is Peter. Now, that we're studying 2,000 years later. We know the impact that Peter has had on the world and certainly on the church. This man who had helped to establish the largest social and religious institution in the history of the world, the Christian church. Crazy to think that when he first met Jesus, he had those such deep feelings of unworthiness. Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I know a lot of people struggle with that very thing today. That there's something in your life or in your character, something in your past or maybe in your present, something in your thoughts or in your desires, something that you think would keep you from being used by God, much less chosen by God. And it strikes me that there are people in this room today or listening online today who, have been, who are bought into that kind of narrative for, for whatever reason, that God can't use you 
because, whatever, whatever it is, you fill in the blanks, something, whatever it is in, in your own life, God can't use you because, God can't use me because, I don't know, I'm, I'm not disciplined enough or, or I'm not capable enough or God can't use me because I'm not popular enough or creative enough. After all, God doesn't use people like me. God, uh, people who have been uh, abused or, or sexually molested or, or people who have left their jobs or fallen into prison, God doesn't use people who have been divorced three times. God doesn't use people who have, have a shady past. You see, God only uses people who are good with their money, who are, who are successful in life. Who, God only uses people who are at the top of their game. I don't know. Maybe that's the narrative you've been led to believe also. But here's the thing. God doesn't follow that narrative. You get that, right? God doesn't follow along with that narrative. That's why He chose Simon that day along the Sea of Galilee to be part of His promise, to be part of His future. God wasn't looking at Simon's resume. God was looking at Simon's heart. And even though Simon thought he was entirely unworthy, Jesus knew that he was entirely worthy. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, these are the very first words that Simon says to Jesus. The first words, go away from me, Lord. Go away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. Go away from me, Lord, because I I can't be in your presence. Go away from me, Lord, because I just can't, I don't, there's stuff that you don't know about about me that I, I don't need to be in your presence. You're too mighty and wonderful and whatever you are and bring to this place, I don't bring any of that and you don't want to be in my presence, Lord. There's stuff within me and around me and through me, stuff in my past and stuff that I'm going through right now. I'm just not worthy to be in your presence, Lord. Go away from me, Lord. But as it turns out, you know, I hope, right, that that's not Peter speaking. That's the narrative speaking through Peter. I mean, that's the narrative that he's long believed about him, himself. That's, that's the pain that's been in his heart. That's the guilt that's been in his soul. That's the agony that somebody's going to find out about his shady past. That's the worry that, that people are going to find out that he's not a very good fisherman, that he's not a very good dad, that he's not a very good, uh, a good husband. You see, that's the narrative that keeps on working at him, on him in his brain, in his mind, constantly swirling him around. It, it won't let him go. It eats at him day and night. Go away from me, Lord. But Jesus grabs him by the arm and he says, I want you to step away from that narrative, Simon. And I want you to follow me. Step away from everything that's telling you that you're not good enough or strong enough or creative enough or popular enough or or, or successful enough, step away from everything that's telling you that you are not worthy and follow me so that you can see how very worthy you are. Because God doesn't call the equipped, God equips the called. And notice this, by the way, it's, it's just one of those times that, that what's not in the story is maybe one of the most important things that's in the story you see, when Simon falls at Jesus' feet, you see that, right? And he tells him that he's a sinful man. Jesus doesn't tell him to go home and clean up his act and then come back. We might expect him to say that. 
to say to Peter, okay, I get it. You got some junk going on. You go home and take care of business, right? Take care of some of that stuff and come back when you're at a better place and then we'll talk. He doesn't tell Simon to change before he can follow because that would be part of that same messed up narrative that far too many of us were taught. I don't know when you were taught that narrative or we were taught that narrative or Simon was taught that narrative of it, but way too many people have been taught that narrative. You know, the one that tells you that God's love is the reward for our change. But the truth is that God's love will be the resource for your change. Friends, if you're feeling unworthy today, if you're feeling unloved or rejected, if you're feeling inadequate, if the world has convinced you that you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you're not successful enough, let Simon be your inspiration. Because if you will, he will be the strength that you need to believe deep in your heart what we are taught in 1 John chapter 3 when he says, see what great love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And if that is what we are, do you know what that makes us? In Christ, it makes us worthy of God's every care and God's every attention. In Christ, it makes us worthy of God's call and of God's purpose in our, in our lives. How do I know? Because I believe God's Word, <laughs> that in Christ, you, I, we are worthy. Thanks be to God. Amen.